Good morning, students. It's been good to look with you at some very serious issues in the in the era of World War II. I think now you understand how significant that time was. And we're going to continue to look at some of the effects of it. Obviously, uh, we've considered Nazi Germany and the effect on the Jews. We will soon, Lord willing, consider the effect on um, the Cold War, the standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union that marked the later 20th century, especially with the nuclear weapons and things like that. Um, what I want to do today, though, is kind of jump to uh, the other theme that, that we often look at in humanities, and that's literature. Uh, we have literature and we have history put together. And we've said that uh, church history forms the backbone of Western history in particular, and even all of history since the cross, resurrection, ascension of Christ to the right hand of God the Father. Everything has been, everything has been given to Christ, right? He is head over all things for the sake of the church. And then the course of, of history is marked by the spread of his word. That's the theme of the book of Acts. And so, church history then, the advance of his word into culture and the effect of it there, as well as then the defense of his word within the church, mark much of not just church history, but Western history. So today we're going to overlap those two other ways we look at humanities. I'm going to introduce to you some writers, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and C.S. Lewis. And they're both writers in the Christian tradition of the 20th century, famous for the World War II era in particular. And I want you to consider also then the literature that they wrote, C.S. Lewis being a novelist, as well as a literary critic and a philosopher, Dietrich Bonhoeffer being primarily a professor and a pastor. Now, these two, let's just, let's just, let me introduce the men, then I'll introduce what's similar about them, and then I, and then I'll finally go to your reading and introduce to you the reading you need to do today. On April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed in Flossenburg concentration camp. He had been part of the resistance um, uh, within Nazi Germany in the assassination attempt of Adolf Hitler. If you remember, um, one of his chief staff members promoted, was able to get close to Hitler at a meeting with a bomb, left the room in order to spare his own life, and while he was out of the room, somebody moved the briefcase with the bomb to another side of the big oak table. And when the bomb went off, Hitler was, I believe, injured but spared. And you read about that in Erwin Lutzer's book on um, Hitler's cross. Well, Bonhoeffer was put in prison. He was, he was a part of that conspiracy. And so uh, eventually then was executed, uh, was hung just days before the Allies actually freed the camp. Now, this his involvement in that as a Christian pastor is really perplexing in one sense. I mean, how can a Christian pastor be involved in the assassination of his ruler? You might say, well, maybe it's authorized by foreigners. 
and they sought the help of the English. And if the English had taken them in and supported them, I guess you could say we're doing it under the auspices of that government. But they didn't take them in. And so they did it on their own as German citizens in high places in Berlin. They conspired against their own government and to kill even this very wicked man. Now, here's the reasoning. I mean, Bonhoeffer said, I don't just want to put, I don't just want to bandage the victims under the wheel of the Third Reich. I want to jam a spoke in the wheel itself. And so he saw that for me just to sit back and do nothing while this is going on, I need to like stop it for whatever means I can do to help. This is really something for a man that used to be a pacifist. In other words, he didn't believe in, in war or fighting. And now, just a mere handful of years later, he's involved in a conspiracy against his leader. He might say, but the man's wicked, and I would agree with you. And perhaps then it would be justified as an act of war. Um, but I wonder about that. I think Bonhoeffer did. Apparently at one point he asked if a murder could be forgiven. He asked another fellow Lutheran pastor if God would forgive a murder. David, of course, had opportunities to kill Saul even when Saul was seeking his life. And David didn't take that opportunity to touch the Lord's anointed. But the difference is there is that the Lord didn't anoint, you know, Adolf Hitler, especially in a special chosen ceremony. He's just ruler like anybody is a ruler under God's appointment and we need to submit to them. And the other thing is that David would have done it for his own defense, though. Um, but what if other people are dying? Can you then, you know, have not just civil disobedience, in other words, not obey your government because you're obeying God, or can you actively stop your government by killing the leader? This is a challenge in ethics. And Bonhoeffer's example here. I think, well, commendable for his risk, and you'll read Cost of Discipleship, while his willingness to obey Jesus with his life, um, I, I still can't get around questioning the ethics of all this. Though, because I'm not in that place, I am hesitant to want to pass judgment on this individual who was bold and did more things, perhaps, in many ways than than what I will ever do. And so... I just leave that as the introduction for Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. He's often been seen as a martyr, a Christian martyr, because he died for this reason. The question is, is he a Christian martyr or is he, is he more of a, a Christian patriot? And he dies because of, of patriotism, love for his country. He's definitely part of the resistance church movement, the confessing church. I'll describe that in a bit. Um, as well. But at any rate, he is famous for this. You've probably heard about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, this German patriot slash martyr. Now, C.S. Lewis didn't die in a concentration camp. He, he, he died, um, I believe, of maybe some heart complications or something. But he, did, he died actually, ironically, the same day as uh, John Kennedy was shot in America, uh, November 22nd, uh, 1963. 
So the assassination of Kennedy in America and the death of C.S. Lewis in Great Britain happened on the same day. Uh, by that time, C.S. Lewis had had um, lost his wife to cancer. He had married uh, Joy Davidman um, in uh, nineteen in the late nineteen fifties. Uh, she actually was an author that was sick with cancer, and he was willing to marry her as just to get allow her to stay in the country next to her son. It was a civil marriage; it was not anything um, romantic. And but because she contracted cancer, he took care of her. He fell in love, and then as a result of that, they had a brief few years of of bliss, and then she did die, and it crushed him. He wrote a little book called A Grief Observed. A really interesting title. Because in 1940, he had written a book called um, The Problem of Pain. What then was an intellectual problem became then a personal experience. And the book apparently reads very differently. It's very raw from what I'm told. The later book. Well, that kind of bookends C.S. Lewis's his life and um, his upbringing um, was not in faith. And so let me just step back for a second. So you understand C.S. Lewis is a writer, like he he's a professor at Oxford for many years, then later at Cambridge, but he is primarily known as a writer and that's he would spend his time basically teaching what he had to. He would show up to class, talking if need be down the hall, just to get in, and then would start packing up two minutes before class ended and would be right out the door. Other than entertaining some students in his study and close circle of friends, the Inklings, he basically was a man to himself, involved in extensive correspondence, but he was a man writing and reading all the time. He is a scholar and a writer. Bonhoeffer was a scholar and a preacher, and they're very different in that respects. What C.S. Lewis did privately, Bonhoeffer was doing very publicly, nationally, even politically. So, I want to compare these two. I put them together because they both show up in World War II. I put them together because they also make significant statements in World War II. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually is called upon by the British Broadcasting Company. Um, they're impressed by his book, The Problem of Pain, published in 1940, uh, to speak by radio to uh, all of England. And he's been speaking at Air Force bases for a while, I believe. And so he speaks, I think, thousands hear him. Those radio broadcast talks become... Mere Christianity. If you've ever read Mere Christianity, other than I think one of the four books, I think maybe the first one was added, but three of the four parts of that book were originally given over radio. And Lewis thought it was his duty to do this. I mean, given the crisis, given people dying, uh, to tell them about, about the Savior, to tell them about God was necessary. And so he caught heat from his fellow professors to talk on radio as an Oxford don, meaning professor, that's beneath your dignity. Well, Lewis did it. 
And as a result of that, he actually suffered. Oxford never gave him uh, a chair of literature um, to, you know, to a real nice promoted chair of literature. Cambridge offered it to him, and so he took it. Once he took it, of course, Oxford was too late in the game offering one, but he was never honored in that way at Oxford, and a large part due to the fact of his, what he called, hot gospeling, uh, speaking to the public. Both men were very concerned with making Christianity understandable and relatable to common men in the everyday life. Christianity could not just remain in the realm of ideas. Lewis saw some value in theology, called it like a a map. You could have a map of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, But to experience a day at the sea is utterly different. A map could be valuable to get you places, but you've got to experience it. Kind of like the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And Bonhoeffer was intensely concerned that the church become relevant again. He felt like they just knew phrases. And it was dead, in a sense. It wasn't willing to confess. You remember Erwin Lutzer's book, Hitler's Cross? Bonhoeffer was a part of the confessing church. Started in, what, 1933? To actually make statements to the government. We're not going to go along with the Third Reich. We're not going to be taken over by the Nazis. They resisted. That And then to find out only later, most of the ministers, even then within the confessing church, capitulated. And Bonhoeffer was left with a very slim minority of other men. And so, these two men then make bold statements during World War II. Public, bold statements. And leave their legacy then behind on the need to go beyond what people think about you and to look at the situation and act. Don't just talk. So, what's intriguing about it is during World War II, who is fighting? And so I'm going to talk today about a German in Berlin, no less, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and an Englishman on the other side of the channel, on the other side of the war, a British Northern Irish men named C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, nicknamed Jack because he wanted to be called Jacksy when he was four years old. Well, they both grew up pretty, pretty affluent, actually. Um, though I think Bonhoeffer's uh, life was a lot more pleasant. Uh, Bonhoeffer was born in 1906. He's the the fourth son of a well-to-do professor of, I think, psychiatry, uh, early in the days of psychiatry, famous professor, not really a believer, but uh, tolerated his wife's beliefs, saw some value, I guess, in the psychological benefit of all this. And so from an early age, Bonhoeffer uh, grew up in a very ritzy home, rich home, was, I think, taught music and tutored and trained really well in his mind and in culture in affluence, and from an early age wanted to be a theologian. Not that that necessarily, I think, pleased his dad, um, but he wanted to be a theologian. He couldn't be shaken from that fact. And he goes um, to university and finally studies. 
He even went, I'm told, on the bus with the famous liberal, German liberal Adolf von Harnack, who go to university on the bus with him uh, day after day. And so Bonhoeffer's life then was pretty happy growing up, where Lewis's life was not. Um, Lewis was isolated in Northern Ireland. Um, he was uh, the second son of just two children. There's just his older brother, Warney, and then himself. Until age nine, he's, his dad is more aloof. His dad is in his work, but he does have a loving mom, Florence. Um, but she dies of cancer, I believe. And his dad didn't take it well and tried to overcompensate by being chummy when the boys didn't want to be. And it was just hard. Coupled to the fact he was then sent to boarding school, and the first choice, the man was insane, and he basically learned nothing, though he was introduced to the Anglican faith there, started going to church and started to pray. He was scared to death, actually. Then later, he went. Um, his dad gave him his tutor, um, William Kirkpatrick, who was an atheist. And so in between there was another school, another college. There was an introduction uh, somewhere along the line where a lady was a spiritist and introduced him to kind of the spirit, spirit side of life, the occult, which is kind of more famous actually in the early 1900s than maybe we realize. And then um, he didn't like Malvern College there. And so he ends up privately tutoring with this atheist. This atheist um, was hard-nosed when it came to reasoning. And he taught Lewis the classics. And he demanded that Lewis think deeply. You can't just have make a statement or assertion without having a reason. This left a mark on Lewis for life. And Lewis became an atheist and very rationalistic in his thinking. Later, when he goes to Oxford, he's a philosopher professor before he's ever a literature professor. He's very gifted in thinking, in reason. So, um, so that's those atheistic beginnings of Lewis are very different than Bonhoeffer. If, another thing that's different, and, and Lewis is what, six years, no, eight years older then Bonhoeffer, born in 1898, um, Lewis goes to World War I and fights. I think Bonhoeffer's son or brothers were there. But Lewis actually fights in World War I as a late teen atheist. And it's a horrific experience. Um, he doesn't talk about it much. Um, in his autobiography of sorts, Surprised by Joy, um, he just passes over that really briefly. And so by the time he ends up back in Oxford, um, he is he is uh, still an atheist, but starts getting introduced to Christians, whether students or especially in literature. And he start he starts realizing the things most interesting are written by Christians. And so by the time 1930 comes around, he first converts to theism a belief in God, and a mere just duty kind of belief. You just got to obey him. That was a lot due to pressures on his conscience until he couldn't take it anymore, and he just gave in. Calls himself the most reluctant convert in England. And then in 1931, 
um, he's introduced by J.R. Tolkien and Hugh Dyson to um, the idea of a Christianity as the true myth, which I'll talk about in a second, and then converts to Christianity. So the paths of these two men are quite different to their professorate. Um, Bonhoeffer's path pretty pretty quickly gets there. At age 21, I think he's finished with his PhD dissertation. Um, brilliant. And he dies at Flossenburg at age 39. And so he gets at it quickly, doesn't have that deep season of atheism. His life is a straight trajectory, basically. Well, how are these men similar then? Um, I, I'm going to touch on some things that are different, but let me just compare them some similarities beyond just both of them teach at universities, both of them write books, both of them talk in World War II. Here's four things that they share similarities. Number one, they're both Protestants, but with um, Roman Catholic kind of forms of religion. So for for C.S. Lewis, um, it's due to his his um, like Aristotelian leanings. Now you students wouldn't know that term. It would be. If you remember Thomas Aquinas from last year and in Humanities, um, there's very much in C.S. Lewis a missing element of the cross. Um, he believes that somehow Jesus, being divine, dying, uh, does the trick to get sinners into heaven. But if you read Mere Christianity, book two, he, he has a theory and he claims nobody actually knows exactly how it works. His theory is that Jesus demonstrates what it means to die to ourself. And so in him living in us, we can be empowered to imitate him and die to ourselves. And if we don't die fully to ourself, or if we die without being fully formed and perfected in love, we actually go to a purgatory and are perfected there before we go to heaven. He's explicit about this purgatory thing in his one of his last books, Letters to Malcolm, on prayer. And so the form of his religion is not Protestant in having justification by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, where the cross removes my guilt and through being united by faith to Jesus, all my debts are absorbed by his riches and all his riches become mine by right. And so I am righteous in Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him is Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's not the way Lewis talks. Lewis talks, he's very good on ethics very good on exposing pride. Um, but in the in the end of it, he's very Catholic in his approach to how a person gets to heaven. They have to be a saint. If they die less than a saint, they have to be perfected, purgated, in purgatory, purged of all that before they can go there. I question that whole thing. I think it's unbiblical. and and But it's logical if you assume that the basis of my acceptance is is um, into heaven is on who I am, not rather on who Christ is. 
and then who Christ is in me as he then, you know, starts developing and making me holy. And so evidence of Christ in me is necessary, but it's not the basis. I was fully accepted through faith alone at the moment of my conversion. I became adopted as a son of God and sealed with the very spirit of sonship who then starts creating heaven in me. So there's there's nothing then left. I am set and secure. Okay, all that to say, with Lewis, I think ultimately um, he can't stand a pope. I think he's independent. He's staunch. I mean, what four-year-old tells his parents, this is what I want you to call me. <laughs> it's a theory, but Lewis is very independent. If Lewis is going to accept it, he's got to make sense to him. And so he remains very autonomous as a thinker, as a person. I don't think there's any way he would bend or bow to an implicit faith kind of thing or accept an authority. Like He hardly went to church. He would do very formal church things. Um, but it was not like he was involved in church life. Okay. Um, Bonhoeffer's Catholic form is monasticism, which you'll read about in um, Cost of Discipleship. He really believes that for the church to be relevant again in the world, there needs to be a monastic kind of level of commitment among Christians. The problem with the old monasticism was the church treated it as a special person, like only the elite people do that. So it created self-righteousness in those who adopted those forms and then left the rest of the church to feel good about just being worldly. Bonhoeffer calls that cheap grace. It's not discipleship. When Jesus bids a man follow me, he bids him to die. And so to take up his cross, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow. And so Luther, he said, did discover it. And when Luther proclaimed that a man is made right by grace alone, as the free favor of God alone, through faith alone, based on what Christ did for me alone, what I described earlier, through the union with Christ, when Luther discovered that it was after he had already, as it were, sought to live for God. And so Bonhoeffer is going to describe um, the view of grace, grace works well as a consequent. When you're truly repentant and you truly believe in the kingdom and you believe that Jesus is Lord and he should be obeyed and you know, I won't, I can't, but I wish I could. Oh, I want to. Then grace speaks wonderfully is what he's going to say. As a consequent of already a life of discipleship. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You are, you are justified. But if you put it as the basis, oh, God's just a forgiving God. He's just going to forgive me. That's why Christ died for me. And you go out and live like you want to live, how you want to live it. That he describes as not the justification of the sinner, but the justification of the sin. It's the justification of sin. You have just made Christ now a reason for sinning. You have turned grace into a license for sin, which is a fundamental error the New Testament attacks as an abuse on the true doctrine of God's grace in Christ. 
And so uh, Bonhoeffer, though, sees the church has become worldly, but the question, the crying question of the day, and it's the one he leads off in the preface is, how can a Christian live in this world doing his job as a Christian? And Bonhoeffer is Lutheran, and as Lutheran, he knows it's going to be through vocation. God has called you to certain tasks, and but it's going to be with the same kind of commitment as the old monks used to have. Jesus, you have my life, you have my obedience, you have my possessions. If need be, I'll be single for you. Whatever you want, discipleship means whatever you say, I believe. Whatever you say is true, I believe. And whatever you say to do, I obey. That's what being a Christian is by definition of discipleship. And that's what uh, Bonhoeffer grabbed hold of tightly and said it needs to happen. Now, he actually put this in place, this monastic view. He studied all sorts of ways to train ministers and was given the task of the confessing church to create a seminary up by the North Sea, I think on the shores, Finkenwalde, an illegal cemetery operated for a while. And with a handful of men, 20, 30 men, Bonhoeffer led them in all sorts of theology classes, teachings. He had been in the university. Now he was in this illegal seminary training ministers in the confessing church, many of whom are going to end up in prison. And he's training them about the demand of discipleship to be willing to give your life. The book that describes his method is called Life Together. That gives us the form of the education. The content of what they received is largely given, I think, in the cost of discipleship. You're going to read a portion of that book. Okay, so that's number one. They have some Catholic forms, but Lewis is Anglican and Bonhoeffer is Lutheran. Number two, they have questionable views about the Word of God. This is very apparent in Lewis. If you do much reading in Lewis, you realize that his view, Reflections on the Psalms, is a great place to begin. He does not hold to the verbal inspiration of Scripture. In other words, that God breathed out the very words of the text. They are human attempts to understand and describe what has been experienced. In the Old Testament, it is myth. Just like pagans have myth, Hebrews have myth. Now, Lewis turns the table on this. What out there is viewed as like a downer. Ah, the Bible is myth means the Bible is false. Lewis then, through Tolkien's um, suggestion, Lewis ends up saying, no, this is when the myth actually became true. And so the God dying and rising again that I've appreciated in pagan myths became fact in the incarnation of Christ. That that um, thought is what drove him across the line to uh, Christian profession of faith. I think it is questionable, both from the way myth is used in the New Testament, but very questionable based on how Lewis defines myth. He says myth, in his introduction to the anthology on, on George MacDonald's um, quotes that he collected, he said myth is basically a pattern of events that speaks for itself. It doesn't need an explanation. 
Well, no wonder then he can't give an explanation for it in mere Christianity and what happened on the cross. Because he denies the verbal inspiration of Scripture, which is the explanation given for what the cross means. And it's divinely given. And so it's unfortunate to me that Lewis didn't take his supernaturalism, I love that about him, or even his belief in the incarnation. God became man. Jesus has to be God. I mean, you can't think he's just a moral teacher, mere Christianity says. He's not just a moral teacher. Moral teachers don't tell you that you're going to answer to them at the judgment. Moral teachers don't tell you, truly, truly, I say to you, he's either a lunatic or he's a liar or he's Lord. And you need to bow down to him. I mean, those are strong stuff. But when it comes to then the Bible... I don't understand why Lewis doesn't take his belief in the Incarnation, God can become fully man, and then say God can speak in fully human words. To me, conceptually, they should both be able to happen. But for some reason, Lewis is doggedly determined to fight against the verbal inspiration of Scripture. It's it's the storyline of Scripture that inspires us, that moves us, to faith in God. I think that has a big part to play, but it's the storyline and its explanation that opens my eyes up to the glory of God. Bonhoeffer's view on on Scripture I'm less familiar with, but I am more familiar with the background. He was trained under Karl Barth as a neo-Orthodox theologian, which means that though the words aren't inspired by God's Spirit, breathed out, God's Spirit uses them to enlighten at various moments. So they're living words. Um, It's a book that's alive that God's Spirit can use to give light to my heart and experience an encounter with God at various times. Now, I've... when. In the little bit of reading that I've done with Bonhoeffer, I've looked to try and see how is he influenced by this. And um, and so, like in Life Together, which is Life Together Under the Word, I can see the livingness of it very much. I don't see a denial of the verbal inspiration. because I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think God can inspire his book and use his book. You have inspiration and illumination. But... Um, so all that to say is, is both men have to be treated with some level of caution. And I think evangelicals today want heroes. And too often they grab Bonhoeffer as a hero because of his stand against Hitler. And though his courage is commendable, I question his ethics and his theology could also be questionable. And Lewis, though he wrote mere Christianity, has great defenses for the belief in God His theology is definitely questionable when it comes to actually explaining what core Christian doctrines actually are. Um, So when you move off of God exists and right and wrong ethical stuff onto explanations, I think Lewis doesn't even have a view of God's retribution as far as active torment goes. In his view of hell, it's just you have to live with yourself and the character you've created. The great divorce presents that. In On the cross, 
the perfect penitent, the view that Jesus dies to self. There's no wrath of God poured on Jesus there. And in reflections on the Psalms, the cursing Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms, he views as cruel and barbaric. A Christian can use them to show the seriousness of evil, but they're wrong and they're unworthy of uh, basically of Christian ethics. And again, cursing is pronouncing God's judgment, active judgment, retribution on somebody. And so Lewis's views of God are, I think, we have to hold with questionability. And so please, if, you, if you're involved with evangelicals and the church and Bible-believing church, be aware of this. If those are negative, perhaps, or at least cautions, let me just say the two positive things. The first is extremely positive. In our culture, there is a fact-value split. In other words, your mind thinks through, thinks through and reasons through things over here scientifically on facts. And to establish public policy, you have to establish it scientifically. But religion, keep to yourself its personal preference, its values. Because it's a preference and a choice, it can't be judged. A person has a perfect right to hold in their values, whether family values or you know, sexually liberated values or whatever values they may have. They're, they're different. Their views of their gender are separate from their, their biology and the chromosomes and the views of a, the person of what's in the womb. While it's human life, it's not necessarily a human person. And, and on and on and on, you live in a culture that has a fact-value split. Lewis felt it. He lived with it as an atheist. All that he thought was meaningful, which he saw in fairy tales and myths, he knew to be imaginary. But all that he thought was real, what his rationalistic mind told him was fact, was uninteresting. He called it thin. It was Christianity that brought it together for him. That the grand story where there was huge meaning actually happened. That miracles are real. That brought together the fact-value split for him. And his explanations of it are fruitful discussions and inquiries. He may not have landed properly on this or that place, but he brings up such good questions and I think he needs to be carefully looked to in order to further this uh, fact-value union on. That is Christianity. Christianity brings the values and the facts together in the person of Jesus Christ and in the work of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. Now, that means that the Bible statements about history are going to be true for a full fact-value union. That the Bible statements about the cosmos, the universe, are going to be true in a real fact-value union. And that the Bible statements about you personally are going to be true in experience. That you can depend on it. It will work out in real life eternally. That's what it means that the values of the Bible are rooted and tied to the facts. That what is right conforms to what is true, and what is true corresponds to reality. So, 
Bonhoeffer himself also demonstrates a fact-value union. He saw the church being this little bubble of religiosity separated from a secular culture. That's living out a fact-value union. What a person is Sunday morning is unrelated to who they are Monday in the office or in the shop or at school. That can't be. And bringing them together is the whole kind of like, I think, the impetus for Cost of Discipleship as a book. And the reason why he couldn't just sit in a church and do nothing in a culture that was going demonic and was killing people off. He couldn't do nothing. He couldn't just have his values in a bubble while the facts were murderous. These are strong examples to consider. And again, maybe we don't end up at the same place practically as Bonhoeffer, but we better share the same spirit. To be indifferent to what's going on in the world is not the spirit of Jesus Christ who felt compassion even when his mission was to give the word. Lastly, what holds these two together, I think, is their emphasis on joy. It was the chief pursuit of C.S. Lewis as a young man. He sensed that there is something deep in this world that goes deep out there. That's, he ended up finding out it's other and outer. It's other than this world and it's outside of this world. But there's a yearning in the human heart that can't be matched by anything in this world. As he states at the beginning of his, his sermon, uh, The Weight of Glory, God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are far too easily satisfied. We are like children who are willing to play with mud and make mud pies when a holiday of six weeks at the beach is made available to us thinking that somehow the mud will satisfy the deepest yearnings of our heart. And as he famously describes in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire for which nothing in this world satisfies, the best explanation is I was made for something other than this world. And so that Desire, he called it joy. It's a romantic literature term of Zainzucht, of seeking after. That deep down, I think, is what Ecclesiastes describes. God put eternity in our heart. As we live within a world of vanity, where everything's temporary, everything is a breath, literally, we still yearn for eternity, what never ends. And so that yearning, the gospel comes and presents and says, it's not just eternal life in the abstract I offer to you and which satisfies it. It's me. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is what our heart ultimately yearns for. No, He is what our heart ultimately yearns for. Similarly, Bonhoeffer describes the the irony that discipleship brings joy. He quotes the parable of Jesus, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and from joy 
over that discovery, sells everything he has and buys that field. If we realize the riches that are in Christ and the riches that is Christ, because the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, and that I of all people, not just because I'm small, but I'm dirty, that I get to know this God even be united to him for eternity to enjoy fellowship with him. If that captures my heart, any cost will be momentary and light. Any affliction will be momentary and light in light of that weight of glory. Any cost will be trivial in light of that gain. And so that's the discipleship is joy. If it's seen through the eyes of faith that to take the yoke upon the yoke of Christ upon you is is to let your heavy burden and heavy laden loadedness go and to find my yoke is easy my burden is light well i hope you enjoy these two readings um bonhoeffer's um we're just reading the beginning of it the preface chapters 1 to 5 on discipleship and what's involved, taken from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three synoptic Gospels. And then, of course, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is C.S. Lewis's way of going around the watchful dragons. It was his first published book of the seven-part series, Chronicles of Narnia. And his goal was to uh, present what Jesus would be like in an imaginary world. It started with an image of a fawn in the woods, something like that. And then he then crafted the story of a lion. I've wondered about this. Not the lamb like we see in Revelation, the lamb slain, but a lion. And this lion, what would Christ do in the world of Narnia? And so when Christ, when when Aslan dies on the table, the stone table, that's not an accurate picture of the cross. The payment is never made to the devil, in a sense pictured like the witch. But I'm not, according to Lewis, I'm not to take this as Christ equals Asland, devil equals witch. He didn't like allegories. And so this is a world, an imaginary world, almost like a thought experiment. What if Christ came to Narnia? What would he do? And so this goes back to the very beginning of when Lewis was a boy. Lewis was born without thumb joints. It was a it was a, a genetic defect of his dad, and as a result, he couldn't build things. He couldn't even open a jar, I remember one story later in life. And so he had to imagine. He's gifted in imagination. He couldn't even do math either. Oxford let him in because of his war service. He couldn't pass the math, the math prerequisite. Gifted in imagination, grows up telling stories, making stories, reading stories, is a master of analogy, picturing, picturing, picturing what things are, of translating hard concepts down to easy to grasp, one sentence, even word pictures. So his goal in writing Narnia was to do what had happened to him when he was still an atheist. Reading a fairy tale of George MacDonald, he said, his imagination was baptized in other words made christian he was intrigued by the themes 
that he read and fell in love with them and found them beautiful. While his mind was still atheistic, saying none of it's true, his heart was captured by a beauty and it fed that Zainzucht, that search for joy. And he thought, if I could do that with Narnia, right? And go around the watchful dragons of reason and appeal to imagination, then others would then start becoming interested in Christ without even realizing it. Now again, is that a godly approach? Or is it sneaky? Hmm. Again, we come back to questions. Both of these men have lots of questions, but both are very interesting. I hope you enjoy these two readings, and I hope this has been a helpful introduction. God bless you.